Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, October the 20th, 2023. We're right in the heart of fall. Earlier this summer, it seems a long time ago now. Uh, I was in Gettysburg at the National Convention of the Braver Angels, a group that I'm intrigued with. One of the people I bumped into there uh, was Alexandra Hudson, who I interviewed last week. She has a new book out, The Soul of Civility. And another guy I bumped into and was interesting was Seth Kaplan, Seth D. Kaplan, um, who is a well-known social activist and writer. And he has a new book out this week called Fragile Neighborhoods. Repairing American Society One Zip Code at a Time. Uh, Seth is joining us from his home in Silver Springs, uh, Washington, D.C., as he told me before we, we went live, exactly 11 miles north of the White House. I'm not sure whether that's <laughs> symbolic. I, 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 haven't, I haven't right. measured it. I haven't measured it, so it's a guess. <laughs> so, Seth, I, I can understand how uh, Lexi Hudson was at at uh, Braver Angels. She, her book, The Soul of Civility, an important and interesting book, talks about how we've got to start treating each other with more respect. What What were you doing, given that you're interested in fragile neighborhoods? Is there a, a connection between what you're trying to do in your work and in your writing and the guys at Braver Angels? Um, first, my day job is depolarization. So what Braver Angels does and the people who run it are always, um, I'm often talking to them and I have great interest. My day job working for uh, basically a peacemaking organization or a conflict prevention organization works in lots of countries around the world. And so I know the Braver Angels people from my work. But the level, the second level is that my argument, one of my arguments in the book is that our polarization and our rising mistrust are downstream from the decline in our relationships and the institutions that support them. And many of these were place-based and whereas once upon a time, most Americans lived in places, neighborhoods with an abundance of institutions that they contributed to, participated in, and that supported them, some of these formal, others informal, and this gave them a sense of agency, a sense of ownership in their places. Today, most of those are gone and people are more isolated. They're more lonely. They're more disconnected. They're more alienated. And I argue that the rise in mistrust and alienation has a lot to do with the decline of our relationships and the opportunities to work together on a daily basis in our neighborhoods. Seth. Where would you date this? We've done many shows on these issues. One group seems to date this with the rise of neoliberalism in the 1980s, others with the rise of the internet. Uh, wh where would you begin to make sense of this crisis in neighborhoods and the alienation and atomization and loneliness that has stemmed from it? The data says the peak of connection, the peak, the peak of what you might call place-based community was 1964. You can look at uh, the person who's done the best work on the data is Robert Putnam. 
Bob Putnam, famous for Bowling Alone, but also several other books. Yeah, Putnam's been on this show a couple of times. And so he's very clear in his last book, 1964 was the peak of what you might call the We Society. And then we, from that date, and um, I would say a series of waves, but um, incrementally over many, many years, now two generations, we have increasingly withdrawn or become disconnected from each other become much more individualistic. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And we could go into that. But I would clearly date it at 1964 was the peak. And we've been mostly downhill since then. And my book is an attempt to reverse the decline, reverse the trajectory of our social dynamics. Yeah, it's nice that you pick a very concrete date. When we think of 64, particularly in the United States, Seth, of course, we think of the upheaval of civil rights. And when we think of pre, and maybe we, I mean, the, the, the amateur sociologists like myself, when we think of pre-1964 communities, we think of much more racially segregated communities. I'm sure you've given a great deal of yes. thought to that. It, could one argue that one reason why there was this peak of community before 1964 is people of different religions, skin colors, and uh, political viewpoints live together? I think there's many things going on here. Uh, clearly, there's some benefit for the breakdown of place-based uh, dynamics and the fact that it's led to a reduction in discrimination. There's certainly much more freedom for women. There's much more freedom for Blacks and other minorities. And before then, we had... Um, Basically, we had segregation in many, many parts of American life, including where people lived, uh, redlining and all things like that. And I think the movement away from that is great. But we're not just talking about a racial issue. We're talking about place issue. And um, in my book, for example, one of my chapters is on Eastern Kentucky. Eastern Kentucky has some of the worst data in the, in the United States, worst in many urban areas. And that area is 98% white, and it's had enormous social breakdown. There are certainly some economic drivers, but there's a lot of other factors which uh, we could discuss. But I think the key point is that the dynamics I'm describing affects blacks, it affects whites, it affects Hispanics, it affects Native Americans. Um, there are people who are benefiting greatly from the breakdown of our place-based neighborhoods. And I think that's that's great. And we don't want to go back in any way to the to the past. But we're really looking for a way forward in which we can recover or reinvent in some other form this idea that places are important, that the, each place should be flourishing with an abundance of institutions. And I don't think many, many of our social problems, you mentioned polarization and mistrust, but I would say deaths of despair. I would say problems of inequality problems of depression, a lot of these go back to the, the thinning out and the decline of our relationships and place-based institutions. They're all happening in parallel, and they have very little to do with discrimination per se. Death of despair, of course, being the term of um, Anne Case, Angus Deaton, Angus has been on the show. In terms of this, I guess, ideal community, pre-64, although as you note, it wasn't ideal in any way, especially when it comes to race. What about class, Seth? Was the 
pre-1964 typical American community, you've, you've done all your research, you know all your data. Did these tend to be communities where people of similar economic circumstances lived side by side? Uh, it, it was more diverse economically. I think one of the most obvious things, if you were to, I mean, you spend time in the United States, when you wander around a city, let's take a place like Baltimore, which is only about 40 minutes from where I am right now, and you go around neighbor to neighborhood, I mean, one of the stark, this is just, you can see it, or you go to Detroit. I, I also researched an organization and I spent time in Detroit. You go around these cities and you just see how important places and you see how much poverty is concentrated. And there's a lot of data that the number of distressed neighborhoods, which are basically uh, a high concentration of poverty, very little, if any, middle class, no wealthy people. It's at least triple what it was in 1970. And that doesn't account for suburbs and rural areas. So I think we are much more divided by class, by where we are in the income scale than we were in the past. Again, the past had a lot of problems. We're not asking to go back to the past, but neighborhoods were more mixed class. Towns were more mixed class. People of different income uh, levels interacted. Uh, there was all these institutions or organizations, and a lot of them involved people from multiple classes, actually involved people from different political orientations. They were racially they, they were not racially inclusive, but they were class and politically inclusive. And the breakdown or the disappear of these organizations is one of the reasons we are so in, unequal as a country and one of the reasons why we are so polarized as a country. We are speaking with Seth Kaplan, the author of Fragile Neighborhoods, an important new book. It's out um, this week. Uh, Repairing American Society, one zip code at a time. Seth, how would you explain this breakdown? Was it white flight? Was it suburbanization? Was it the crisis of the inner city? What went wrong? What happened after 1964? I think uh, the dynamics that drive this started post-World War II. I mean, the data says 64, but a, a, a variety of things happened. First, Think about the built environment. Instead of people living in a particular neighborhood where they easily went to each other's homes, where they would shop locally, where they would go to church locally, where they would join some associations or some parental parent group because the schools were local, everything was local. Everything was, if not within walking distance, pretty close. Then we built out uh, a physical landscape and I, the institutions that uh, that we are involved with have followed a similar trajectory, but we built out a landscape that depends upon the car. I mean, this is all for efficiency and there's great benefits. Goods are cheaper and choice is greater. But when you drive to a Walmart and you don't go down the street to a store and you even if you go to church, you don't go to the local church, you tend to drive to your church. So you're in the church on a Sunday morning and then you're not with your fellow congregants the rest of the week or maybe one other time. So it's not a community. It becomes a function, something that you a consumer product that you and the same thing for goods, the same thing for restaurants, the same thing. Even schools often we're sending our kids to some faraway school. And so whereas once we lived in a place that was had a strong identity, 
had uh, a series of institutions, businesses, um, informal networks, schools, religious institutions, and you could just go down this whole list, civic associations. Now we live in networks. And so that's because of how we built the country. It's also be, uh, because of how the nonprofit sector has evolved. It's also because of the role of the car, its changes in, in, in work, um, work uh, private time balance. And you could go through a whole series of things that have changed in our lives. But I think if you go back to the heart of the matter, there's something about the, the physical and the institutional landscape that leave us basically adrift and alone and not even knowing our neighbors and not having much of a, any allegiance to people or place in any respect. And that may work for a lot of people, but those that don't have great networks, it leaves a lot of people behind, a lot of people unhealthy or unhappy and not supported when they need it. And of course, it all leads to depression and other illnesses. What about the political angle? Of course, the person who most uh, appreciated, at least in its early days, American democracy was Alexis de Tocqueville. And his argument about American democracy was it was rooted in place, rooted in geography, rooted in the kind of communities that now you're nostalgic for. How closely uh, do you connect the crisis today, it seems to be a crisis of American democracy, and the crisis of, of neighborhoods? First, I would say it's a social crisis that affects many other um, elements and the polarization or the crisis of democracy is downstream, just like the health crises, the deaths of despair, and all the other social problems we are having. Remember, social problems mean at heart they are relational. We often think of them in terms of silos, material, but I'm arguing they are relational and the crisis of democracy is side by side with these other issues and they're all downstream from neighborhoods. So the Tocqueville is a great source to see what a thriving social dynamic, social system with thriving, I'm not sure he uses the word neighborhood, but he uses the word place a lot. He talks uh, uh, over and over again about the abundance of institutions. I mean, he even argues the success of American democracy versus, for example, the French experience. And he's writing uh, sometime after the fall of the French Revolution and the rise of Napoleon and then the fall of Napoleon and the restoration of the monarchy. He's comparing France to the United States, and he's basically saying, America, this can work because you have so many of these local institutions and associations, and democracy as a value, democracy as a practice, is basically people are experiencing it, they're learning it, they are participating in it day in, day out with elections and national government and outcomes downstream from that. And my argument is very much like the Tocqueville. If you reverse that dynamic and locally there are no associations and there are no networks and there are no ways for you to participate in your locale, uh, neighborhood or uh, some places a little bigger than neighborhood, why, why is it that our democracy on the bigger picture will be as healthy or even successful or even exist at some point? I think he's a great example of why neighborhoods matter. Yeah, I, I wonder if we could bring Alexis de Tocqueville back to life in the 2020s and we blindfolded him and brought him <laughs> into an American neighborhood and said, or, 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 or got him to, so to speak, look at America, even if he was blindfolded. 
he would think he was looking at an aristocratic France rather than a democratic America. America is becoming, I think, in, in some ways, in ways, some ways, like yes, an early nineteenth-century version, a sort of postmodern version of of, of post-feudal early modern France. We can ask ChatGPT if it will invent a de Tocqueville for that conversation. Yeah, I look we'll have a word. To uh, we'll call up Samuel. <laughs> that would be very helpful. That would, would be, be a great, that would be great, very interesting if we could do that. Yes, yeah, civic contribution from Sam. We are talking with Seth Kaplan, the author of Fragile Neighborhoods, an important new book. I want to thank our sponsor for this show, the Disorder Podcast. Uh, it's a wonderful new podcast focusing on all the issues that Seth brings up. They've got a weekly show uh, last week or this week. They're focusing on dirty money, focusing on NATO, um, the crisis, of course, of uh, the Israeli-Hamas war. Uh, I'm going to run a short ad for Disorder, and then I want to come back and talk more to Seth Kaplan about these fragile neighborhoods, and most importantly, what we're going to do to make them less fragile. So don't go away, anyone. We'll be back in two seconds. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall, and this is Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out, why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? How did we get here? And what can we do to fix it? The Disorder Podcast is out now. Make sure you follow us so you can get every episode right now in your feeds. Uh, check it out. It's an excellent podcast. Uh, we are talking today on Keen On with Seth Kaplan, the author of Fragile Neighborhood. So, Seth, you've laid out the problem, atomization, loneliness, a sense of decay and perhaps even despair. What are we going to do about it? How are we going to make our neighborhoods less fragile? First, we must re-envision our landscape so that we all live in a neighborhood. Right now in America, a lot of people live in what I would call a placeless environment. I mean, I, my, I happen to live in a strong neighborhood, but if I was to go about five or 10 minutes driving from here uh, in the suburb of Washington, I would see a lot of very nice houses and I would see some green areas and I might see some pathways. I see no place for people to meet in that area. I see no institutions. There's a county government that looks over hundreds of thousands of people. There's no local um, level of government. There's no local institutions. There's no identity of a neighborhood. So first and foremost, I argue that we should re-envision our physical and institutional landscape so that neighborhoods matter and neighborhoods, uh, we, can, we can hold government officials accountable for neighborhoods, neighborhoods have identity, neighborhoods have a center. So we have to literally think, I mean, that none of this is easy. We have to rethink government and we have to rethink the physical and institutional landscape. So I'll just give you a few bullets. So a neighborhood has a center, a neighborhood has a beginning and an end. A neighborhood has um, places to meet and it has local institutions of variety. So there's a lot of things we could do from having community schools to having um, a layer of government to encouraging church leaders to be more place-based, to having some sort of civic associations. The more each place has these elements, the more likely it will be nurturing relationships. I'm just thinking, since I'm in a strong neighborhood, I'm thinking of a person a few houses down from me. I'm at 910. 
She's at 903. She regularly, I see her walking in front of my house. She regularly goes and visits people who are alone and are basically uh, lonely. And she, I see her every week visiting. So if we want to have a, a thriving society, we need to have many people like that in the physical and institutional environment. I, I would also add to that government should not be evaluated on housing units or healthcare output or or school units. The more government was organized that it was place-based. And the, I mean, basically this means neighborhood teams with the functional units reporting to them. And the more we measured success, not by some number that was only economic, but some number, a series of numbers that were based on the well-being of neighborhoods, we would be evaluating officials, we would be evaluating philanthropists, we would be evaluating social entrepreneurs. And so we literally need to rethink the physical, the way we measure success. And then we have to do, I would say, initiatives geared towards encouraging people to go together. One very uh, simple initiative, instead of giving money to nonprofits, why not have small grant programs on the street or several street level that encourage residents to work together to do something to improve their neighborhoods. If government thought that its job was to nurture strong relationships and its job was to make each place thrive, I think a lot of things would be quite different. You mentioned your neighborhood, Silver Spring. Uh, I'm in San Francisco, in the, in the heart of San Francisco, just above Haight-Ashbury. I'm guessing Silver Spring is is probably a relatively prosperous neighborhood. Yes. Certainly where I live is prosperous, and there is a sense of community. Are there two Americas today, Seth? On the one hand, strong, small communities of prosperous, uh, in, in prosperous uh, urban centers like Washington, D.C., New York. You can find these kind of communities, for example, over, all over Brooklyn. San Francisco, perhaps Los Angeles, and then the rest of America? I think we need to differentiate between material wealth and social wealth, and the reverse is also true. Imagine we were to, we were in Gettysburg together, and what if we had driven, I don't know, an hour and a half east, we would have been in where, where the center in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, with the Amish. Now, the Amish are not wealthy. They are extremely socially rich. And they do a lot of things in their daily and weekly lives to encourage community. I think if you look at immigrant communities from different parts of the world, they come to America often poor, but they have a lot of social relationships. They come together to support each other. Um, and I also think you can easily find places that are materially well off and nobody talks to each other. How many neighborhoods have you been to in which no one's on the street? No one wants to know what anyone else is doing. Everyone is more worried about guarding their privacy. And I would say not showing any vulnerability. We have a culture that basically says we can solve whatever problem we have, and we don't want to show any vulnerability or weakness to others. So you could be materially well-off, socially vulnerable, and you, the reverse can be true. So I, I do believe you, ba your basic thesis is that, yes, we're divided as a country between socially well-off and socially poor uh, neighborhoods, but I don't think it necessarily maps on to the income wealth and income poverty. Um, I think we need to think of these things differently, and we need to address uh, the social determinants of the various problems that these this isolation or bad social dynamic produces at the neighborhood level. 
Seth, I've heard this argument before. I've had Putnam on. It always seems a, a, a nostalgic communitarianism. We can't become Amish, whether we like it or not. <laughs> I wouldn't so, mind it. <laughs> well, you might. I don't want to be an Amish. Uh, I don't like beards. Um, they'd be itchy. Uh, is this realistic? Are you nostalgic for another world where paranoid, as you suggest, we don't trust other people? Don't we have to... You seem to think we can just snap our fingers and create these institutions, churches, places to meet. You know as well as I do. You you know better than I do as a local activist that you can't do these kinds of things. First, nothing I'm writing about is easy. I'm very clear that even at a single neighborhood level, change is a long-term process. Every neighborhood is different. What is required in each place will vary. However, my argument that... Uh, the way we've designed the country physically and institutionally basically leaves a lot of places left behind. And even in the places that are materially doing okay, we leave a lot of individuals behind and we need to think much harder. This is not something a, a government can structure society, a government policy or a healthcare initiative is not going to address these things. We tend to look for policies. And my argument is that we can think about structures and in such a sense that we can nurture change. None of this is easy. I am. I am. Uh, I do not believe I've worked. Think, but one of my day jobs is I work on trying to end the war in Libya. I assure you, there is no magic bullet, and there's no single initiative that will ever do that. It's about grinding, incremental, slow improvement. But I think if we don't think of our problems the right way, we can never get started on the path to addressing them. And we cannot think that simply another policy or more money will address these problems. Yes, some policy could be helpful. Yes, some money could be helpful. But we need to understand the heart of the problem is the breakdown of our relationships. And we need to think really hard about how we design our society and how we design each place so that it encourages and nurtures flourishing. And, and that is my main point. I don't think any of this is easy. In fact, I look at the challenge and I just, I worry how big of a challenge this will be. Seth, uh, as the election looms, it seems as if it's profoundly uninspiring, even for people who support Biden and Trump. Yes. Do we need to rethink the very nature uh, of politics? Again, we can't go back to the top bill. We can't go back to Amish social or political institutions. But uh, Tip O'Neill famously said that all politics is local. Are you suggesting that all political theory should be local? Do we need to rethink the very nature of political ideology and how we think about politics? And rather than thinking of either the alternative of um, the free market, which tends to be a Republican ethic, versus the, Repub uh, but versus the ethic of big government, which tends to be found in the Democratic Party, the real ethic is of local government? Well, I, I would, certainly wouldn't be throwing away the idea of democracy and, lib and pluralism and liberalism as they, um, as they exist in the United States and other countries that en enjoy the freedoms and the rights uh, that these things bring. I, I'm not arguing against any of that. What I am arguing is that I think I'm arguing a couple of things. One is we are more likely to solve our big problems by focusing on a lot of little problems. And instead of 
campaigning. Yes, I think policies matter. And yes, I think elections matter. And I have strong opinions about our politics, but you won't see me in my daily life prioritizing them. On the other hand, you will see me prioritizing um, local elections, yes, but local associations, especially. I'm on the board of one. I'm very involved in another. I contribute to several more. When I send a check or I think about my spare time or I think about my energy, where can I make the biggest impact? I don't think it is in national politics. So I'm not arguing we change the theory of any of those great ideas that um, people have worked on for centuries and that our Constitution and our Declaration of Independence um, uh, declare for us and establish for us. And uh, I'm not arguing against any of that. That's extremely important. And it's the basis for our whole country to operate and be successful. But I am arguing that if we want to address the challenges of democracy and many of the other problems we have, we have to think local. And each of us, and I would argue also organizations, government institutions, need to have a different framing about how they look at problems. And they need to focus, as if you're an individual, focus on the local. Focus on something you can concretely, tangibly improve. I would say for government, think hard about how spatially across the physical landscape, how successful each place is, how people are experiencing life. What is it that we can do, not just materially, but in terms of how we structure society and 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 encourage the types of institutions so that everybody will flourish. I think that's really important. And I will note a second point just at the end of this, that if you went back to the founders of the United States, people like Madison, and it's the same with the Tocqueville and other people. Um, you could look at Edmund Burke and so on and so forth. They all firmly believe that democracy, I think Madison would be most obvious in the, in the, the Federalist Papers, that we needed a certain, a certain I, I'm not sure I would use the word virtue, but a certain type of habit and a certain type of norm and a certain type of person for democracy to succeed. The, the formal mechanisms of government are only as successful as the underlying, what you might call pre-political social dynamic. And so the founders were very worried about how well democracy would be over the long term. And I think they all very much understood the importance of local dynamics, interpersonal relationships, and how that shaped people, and how by shaping people, those people would shape the country as a whole. Finally, Seth, I wonder how you could leverage the market to improve what you call fragile neighborhoods. You noted earlier that many communities don't have, and I'm quoting you here, meeting places, but they do. When you go to even uh, every strip mill has, a, every strip mall has a, a, a Starbucks, for example. Could you involve uh, national chains like Starbucks to help rebuild communities? Does it has to be either the free market or the community? Can't be they be combined? I think it should be everyone. Government has a role. Philanthropy has a role. Social entrepreneurs have a role. Businesses have a role. Private individuals have a role. I mean, for the most part, companies want to do when they want to do good. They give to a material endpoint, usually like ending poverty, ending homelessness, something like that. I think these are worthwhile goals. But if they thought, what could we do upstream that would reshape the dynamic to make it less likely that people had those problems or if 
people had crises, the social the social networks around them would support them. I feel like I live in a social, um, a, a very supportive social network. I walk down the street and I feel a, literally a sense of joy, a sense of security because I live in a secure social system because of the nature of the relationships and everything in my neighborhood. So I think companies could certainly play a role. I mean, it's nice to have an independent coffee shop, but to the extent that every neighborhood had a place to meet and it had something to do with Starbucks or something else. I mean, I'm in favor of smaller, smaller distributed um, like centers. So we don't all go to the mall. We don't all go to the huge department store or Walmart. I, I mean, that's useful for some things. And I, of course, order online like another other people. But the extent that you live in a neighborhood that has several restaurants, mine has three, including one one very good coffee, has a supermarket, has a pharmacy. At least it has places people can gather. I would also say when we talk about some of our social poverty, companies could be doing much more. And I, I think all the actors I've mentioned could be doing much more to ensure that when we talk about wealth creation, we think of it much more place by place. So it's not all centralized or distant. If people within a neighborhood had an opportunity to create businesses or at least renovate their houses, and this was an easier path for people, we're talking more poor places. I mean, I think that would be helpful. I'm also thinking in terms of when we give money, what would happen if instead of the tax credit, we simply had for giving money to uh, nonprofits, it somehow incentivize us to give to local nonprofits. So there's a lot of things that companies could companies could could advantage local giving over national giving. Companies could certainly work to make our economy more horizontal, less vertical. Companies could certainly work with government and local leaders to ensure that every place had centers, including their businesses, more widely distributed. There's a lot of things companies can do.